This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Agua. You basically are teaching future CEOs and CMOs and other C-suite people potentially how they can use psychology and social psychology to create better businesses. And you're here to say that the businesses that tend to succeed are the ones that allow for different opinions. So an example of where a business was like a cult that we talk about in our book is Enron. That was one of the biggest, richest, most powerful companies in the history of this country. And they, if you if you looked at what the, was going on inside, and I've talked to former insiders, it was a cult psychology, the same as you see in these crazy cults that you read about on TV or you're watching documentaries. And, and of course, then it, the whole thing collapsed. And right up even after the whole thing collapsed, they were still telling themselves that they were going to be a success. That, that I heard internally a story was Warren Buffett, our friend Warren, is going to come in and save us. They just constantly were rationalizing all the terrible things they had done and never thought they were going to have to face reality. We have been like a, like a dog with a bone recently here on the Rick Sanchez podcast. Hi, everybody. I'm Rick Sanchez. You know, America has never been so angry and so siloed. And here we are going into the holidays and we continue to have these conversations because, well, we're going to be hanging around with each other more, whether we like it or not. And at the same time, we're in these very disparate camps and um, we're struggling with what we possibly do to be able to understand the other guy's perspective or the other gal's perspective, because we just can't right now. I mean, we, we, you know, we recently played a couple of examples. In fact, Scotty and I did an entire podcast on this, and it's the dynamic of whether you're on the left you think whatever your guy does is okay, but if the other guy from the other team does it, then it's definitely not okay. And and this has been going on lately, for example, you know, we use the example of Donald Trump said he wants to get rid of part of the Constitution and most of the Republicans say, oh, he says a lot of crazy things. But uh, he, here's, here's, once again, I mean, here's Republicans going crazy when our former, former president, Barack Obama, didn't wear a lapel pin with the American flag. Watch how they reacted to this. American flag pin is standard accessory for just about every politician and candidate in the country these days, but not Barack Obama. Presidential contender Barack Obama won't wear an American flag lapel pin. The reporter for ABC's Cedar Rapids affiliate was the first to notice. A no pin zone. You're taking the pin, taking the, the American flag off. off of you and saying I'm not going to wear it almost in a little bit of a, a protest, but, I guess. I think he's disrespecting the American flag. He's got to apologize to the people, for example, that are working in the fields. There were Marines, we're in the Army. It matters something to our troops. Why do we wear pins? Because our country was under attack. Barack, put on the pin. They just hate the flag. They put on the pin. What's wrong with you? Oh my God. It's like, and yet I watched the Sunday shows recently where they were asked a lot of Republicans, and by the way, Democrats do the same thing. So let's, you know, I just happen to be watching it from this point of view, 
But the same Democrats who are constantly whining about Republicans starting the Iraq war are now wanting us to go to war with Russia for some reason. It's like, yeah, they, they, they can't. We can't have World War III start soon enough by some of the folks on the left who used to say the same things about the right. So it, it goes both ways, just to be just to be fair here. But but here they were when you heard um, the Republicans and, you know, the Fox News crowd obviously complaining about the former president not wearing a pin, a pin. It's like. And now when they're asked. Well, what about Donald Trump wanting to get rid of part of the Constitution? Literally coming out and saying, I want to get rid part of the Constitution. The biggest and most important mantra amongst Republicans and a word that is said 50 times every day on Fox News. So now their former president from the Republican Party, just because he happens to be a Republican, says, I want to get rid of the Constitution. Here's a cut from George Stephanopoulos where he's interviewing a Republican leader and watch his reaction. Can you support a candidate in 2024 who's for suspending the Constitution? Uh, I will support whoever the Republican nominee is. It's a remarkable statement. You just, you'd support a candidate who's come out for suspending the Constitution? Well, you know, he, he says a lot of things. Uh, you have to take them in context. So <laughs> this, is, this is who we've become. This is America right now. So when one guy doesn't wear a pin, we need to lambast him, right? We, we need to take him out and, you know, uh, do what we will with him. When the other guy says he doesn't believe in the Constitution and wants to get rid of part of it, ah, you know, it says a lot of things. How did we get here? How did we get here? And how the hell do we climb, our, climb out of this hole that we've uh, gotten us into, gotten ourselves into because of our media? Because of the algorithms on, on, on YouTube and on the Googles and on the internet that are basically dividing the hell out of us and enjoying it and making money of it in the process. But, but it's us in the end. It's us. It's our responsibility. We're the ones who are allowing this to happen to ourselves. We're the ones who are allowing ourselves to get angrier and angrier all the time and separate ourselves from our family members and our loved ones just because they have a different opinion about something than we do. That is where we are right now as Americans. That's where we are. We're like in a hole. You know that expression about when you're in a hole, stop digging? Well, we're digging and we're digging more and more every day. I want to bring somebody in who's written about this. This is uh, pretty cool. So in fact, his book is called The Power of Us. Listen to this, The Power of Us, harnessing our shared identities to improve our performance, increase cooperation, and promote Self, uh, social harmony. Boy, does that hit it right on the head. I mean, if we've ever not had shared identities, if we've ever had to be able to improve our performance through cooperation, if we have ever as people, as a country, me, me, Rick Sanchez, you who are listening to me, if you've ever had to find a way to promote more harmony in your life with others, it's now. Oh my God. It's now. Yeah. Jay uh, Van Bavel is an associate professor of psychology and listen to this neural science at New York University. Uh, that means he's a smart guy and uh, he, he's part of the business school and he understands social behavior. And in fact, I, I was looking at uh, um, something here. Professor, thanks for being with us, man. How you hanging? How you doing over there? I'm good. I'm, I'm surviving. So uh, glad to be here. That's yeah, great. It's great to hear your voice. You, you, you. How'd you get to be so smart? By the way, 
<laughs> I just went to school too long, you know. Uh, I, I don't think that's the best idea for everybody. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Right in life, everything is always a cross between too much and too little, and you chose the too much thing, and I, I admire you for that. You know, I guess uh, you know it made you a hell of a lot smarter than the rest of us. So you've got a chapter. Uh, this is interesting. In fact, I'm going to read the chapter description so people understand, you know, why you have the bona fides to talk to us about this problem. And maybe we can learn something from you, hopefully. Uh, chapter three is called Sharing Reality. And it's about inv it investigates how the beliefs that people hold are often a product of the social dynamics. Stay with me here. So the beliefs that we have are the product of the social dynamic of the groups that we belong to. So we, we, it's not us. It's whatever we decided to make are we. So you, you've actually, in your book, you break down the psychology of cults. Uh, you explain how factors like these affect groups and organizations um, and, and how people end up being a part of those truths that may not necessarily be them, but once they're be once they become them, once they're there, they can't separate themselves from it, and, and that's happening right now with average Americans. You know, maybe are we? What is it? Are we all in a cult right now? Is that what's going on? Yeah, I mean, this so this is a great thing is when you study groups, you can look at cults. Uh, we also t study sports fans. You study politics. You see a very similar type of psychology. Obviously, it gets really bad in cults where people start to rationalize any type of belief. Um, one of the cults we talk about, they they said the world was going to end and, and an alien ship was going to come get them. And they had a scientist in the room at that moment when the clock struck midnight and this and there was supposed to be a flood and the aliens were supposed to come and save them. No aliens came, you know, no flood came. Well, what would you expect to happen to those people? You might expect they'd pack up their bags and leave the cult. But no, the opposite happened. They started to rationalize and justify and wow. make an explanation for why the... <laughs> The aliens never came. And so instead of leaving the cult, they doubled down. By the next day, they were calling the media to tell them that their beliefs had changed the world. And so once you start to like see this type of pattern, you start to understand when people get too identified with the group and they're unwilling to update their beliefs, um, it can lead to all kinds of crazy rationalizations of, of all kinds of distorted beliefs. I, I Listen, I don't want to turn this into a political conversation, but with that example that you just used, you made me think of something that our former president said. Donald Trump once said about the people who follow him, and he is so masterful at getting people to follow him. He is so good at that. He is the greatest brander in the history of the world as far as I'm concerned. He once said, I could shoot somebody in, uh, in, on, on Fifth Avenue in New York, and the people who see it and watched it would still vote for me. He said that. That's exactly what you just said. These people said, at tonight at midnight, we're all going to disappear. We believe in this. Midnight came, and what? And, and, and five minutes after midnight, they said, no, no, we, we still believe. And what the hell? How, right? Yeah, I mean, this is also where you get conspiracy theories. It's when you really don't want to believe some reality that's facing you. You come up for some, some misinformation or conspiracy theory to make it seem as if someone's hiding the truth from you. And we're now seeing a lot of that in politics in a way that, you know, I've never observed before. And it's how it helps people rationalize their beliefs uh, when when they have a group that they feel is under threat or attacked or treated unfairly. They can come up with explanations that help them 
hold together that identity that they really care about. Have we always been such group thinkers or what is it about it now that makes it seem like it's a little more uh, dangerous, uh, a little more precarious for our institution and for our democracy? Yeah, so I'll say two pieces. One part of it is that we've always been like this because it's part of our DNA, right? So humans evolved in small groups on the savanna. We're not very strong. We don't have, we can't fly away. We don't have camouflage. The secret to our success as a species, why we dominate the whole globe is because we cooperate. And our ancestors who were kicked out of groups died. They didn't reproduce. They got picked off. Hmm. And so we are the ancestors of hundreds of generations of people who fit into groups. So that's part of our, our DNA, right? So we're always worried well, about... Well, that's interesting because I've, I've been reading a lot about civilization and how it was formed recently. And you're right. Man was a nomadic being. But then we formed these places like Uruk uh, right there in uh, the uh, fervent crescent. And we realized that only the people who were able to build into those little communities you know, right there in what is today Iraq, we're, we're able to subsist and continue on and became part of a larger, uh, a larger global uh, community that we have now. So it, it, we, we can't actually pin it down to that time. And there were people who did not fit in and were pushed out. And, and, and those groups, and I, I know you know all the names of them, but I forget them now, but they're in the Bible and in the Torah. Uh, th those were the groups who stopped existing while others continued to exist and flourished, right? Yeah. And so you take these kind of this, our species, which is very groupish, and then drop us into the middle of American politics in 2022, right? Mm. Which is we're more polarized than we've been in, since I've been alive, you know, almost 50 years since we've been measuring it. We're more polarized. And the other thing is our polarization is not driven by in-group love. People love their political party the same as they've done for decades. What it's driven by is out-group hate. They really despise the other group and don't want them to win or have power. And so we're constantly rationalizing stuff that our group does, even if we might not fully trust our leaders or our group, even if we think they're imperfect, we want to rationalize it because we're terrified of the other group. And so that's the type of thing that can make us really go through all kinds of uh, mental uh, gymnastics to hold on to a belief system. It's often that threat of the outgroup. What about guys like you and guys like me who, who know uh, that in many ways they're they're all full of crap and they're both full of crap. And Biden is in many ways just as full of crap as, as, as Trump is, as was Obama was, because they're all human beings. They make mistakes and we shouldn't fall in love with any of them or hate them to that degree as well. Correct. Yeah. And so you can be you can be you can be a skeptic, which is healthy, right? It's healthy for us to be skeptical and mm -hmm. critical. Um, and it's really healthy for us to actually be skeptical of our own groups. In fact, one of the one of the things, if you look at companies, one of the best predictors of a group making good decisions is that someone dissents. They have a culture where dissent is healthy and normal and you don't get kicked out of the group. And, and it turned into one of my favorite findings. Even if you dissent in a group decision and you're wrong, the group tends to reach better decisions because it makes a safe space for other people to share their opinions. And so you kind of make it make it more comfortable for other people to speak up and say what they think is wrong. So that's actually, there are groups where people really are passionate about the group, but the group's super successful. And those are ones where dissent is part of the, the norms and the values and the DNA of the group. I'll be damned. That's a fascinating point you just made. Look at, uh, you say, and and you uh, actually have uh, 
you know, let me let, let me let people know something about you, which is an important because you're a professor of psychology and neuroscience at New York University. And a lot of people would think that that makes you like a very dweeby guy who's into all this, you know, neural psychology stuff. Actually, it's an affiliate of the Stern School of Business and Management and Organizations. So you basically are teaching future CEOs and CMOs and other C-suite people potentially how they can use psychology and social psychology to create better businesses. And you're here to say that the businesses that tend to succeed are the ones that allow for different opinions, right? So so an example of where a business is like a cult that we talk about in our book is Enron. That was one of the biggest, richest, most powerful companies in the history of this country. And they, if you if you looked at what the, was going on inside, and I've talked to former insiders, it was a cult psychology, the same as you see in these crazy cults that you read about on TV, you're watching documentaries. And, and of course, then it, the whole thing collapsed. And right up even after the whole thing collapsed, they were still telling themselves that they were going to be a success. Hmm. That, that I heard internally that story was Warren Buffett, our friend Warren's going to come in and save us. They just constantly were rationalizing all the terrible things they had done and never thought they were going to have to face reality. And so this same thing happens in organizations when you see a big crash. Theranos was another one. You look at these, these companies, billion-dollar companies that go down, almost always they have a cult-like culture where they don't value a dissent and updating your information. What if I'm like a 30-year-old guy and I rarely take a bath, I don't comb my hair, I wear really baggy shorts, and I get a little island in the Bahamas, and I take with me about 40 or 50 guys, and I have this company called FTX, and uh, suddenly I uh, have uh, gone into people's accounts who are trading with me and taken their money and used it for my own purposes. Isn't that a cult as well? Yeah, you know, I was on another podcast and they wanted to talk about Bitcoin as a cult. And that was before the whole thing uh, started to crash. And I don't want to say the whole enterprise is a cult, but you get culty little groups like that where they're insular. They believe everything they're saying. They 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 constantly, you know, the old thing that we used to say was yes, men. They're constantly saying yes to whoever their leaders are, not challenging them. And those are the only people that get invited to the cool island. Well, then what do you expect to get? You're going to get groupthink and eventually it's going to catch up with you. I never thought of that. But my God, if you think of the whole Bankman Freed thing, here's some guy on an island. So that's isolation and seclusion. He is manifesting amongst a very small group of people. All of them tend to be the same age, have the same ideology. They're all lefties. They're all part of the Democratic Party. The funding when they give uh, contributions only goes to the left, never to the right. I mean, you know what? What you just described, as I think back on it now in that example, that kind of describes what you were just talking about, doesn't it? Wow. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I mean, that's that's the rest. You can imagine. Take two groups. One that's insular, has a bunch of people who agree with each other, don't allow dissent, and they think they're on some mission, some noble mission. Um, that is the recipe for, for groupthink and cultish psychology, whether or not you see that in a political party, an investment scheme, uh, a sports club, a company in the C-suite. And now imagine you have the opposite of that. 
You have a leader that's open about their mistakes. You have a culture where dissent is valued and recognized as important. And you have people who actually feel like they're working towards something together, even though they might disagree. That's the recipe for a group that's more likely to succeed, especially over the long run. You know what's interesting? And Scotty, I want to bring you in on this because you're part of the media. You've been producing for the better part of your life now. And you know darn well, because you've probably done it and so have I on certain occasions when we were running spots. Um, and, I, and I don't say this because I'm proud of myself, but it's easy when you have a microphone or you have a camera or you're part of a television network. I mean, I worked at CNN. I worked at Fox. I worked at NBC. I worked at Univision. You and I have worked together at uh, iHeartRadio. Um, it's easy to be able to manipulate people to get them where you want them to go. And that in and of itself is cultish. I mean, uh, we've said before, Rachel Maddow, Scotty, only pushes a certain uh, ideology. Sean Hannity only pushes a certain ideology. They're two different ideologies, but they're using their microphone to do that. So today, right, we're, it, it's, hard, it's easy to be susceptible to that. I know this because, I, Scotty, we've grown up in this, right? We're, we're on this side of this thing. We're, we're, we're creatures of habits. So... We, we tune in every single night to watch our, our program of choice, our news program of choice, and we hear the same talking points being parroted over yeah. and over and over again. And it may start out with something where we say, well, that's, that, that may be strange. President Obama hates America? Huh, that's, that's weird. But by the 10th, 15th night of you hearing the same thing and people coming on telling you why he hates America, then you're out in the street saying, hey, man, you know this Obama, he really hates America. He wasn't even born here for that matter. And I feel like a lot of times that that repetitiveness mixed with us being creatures of habits is kind of what you see happening out of this. But, and to even but, but, but wait, wait, wait. Listen to what you just said, though. What you just said describes like McCarthy era, right? Yes. There was one oh guy God, yes. who repeated the communist. Yes. It's communism, communism, right. communism. Anybody right. out there is uh, who disagrees with you, he's a communist. Yes. And, but eventually we kind of found him out and moved him out. Today, there's probably a thousand McCarthy's out there. Yes. Are, am oh I God. right, Professor? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the what Scotty said is there's lots of studies on that, that if you repeat a lie over and over again, people who hear it the second, third, fourth, fifth time are more likely to believe it. And wow. so if people are doing this, whether it's on, you know, their, their blog or on mainstream media, whatever it is, or talk radio, all these things are places where you can hear misinformation. And the other thing is, uh, and, and and cult leaders do this. What they do to, to create kind of this cultish mentality is they cut you off from other sources of information. They say, we can't trust your family or or some some religious communities do this. Wow. They say that person's a disruptive person. You need you can't trust them and you can't, can't talk to them. And so you can do this around politics all the time or all kinds of information. You start telling people not to trust other news, not to trust these other things. And they start to rely on you. They become dependent. And that's the point where they're dependent on you and you just repeat the same misinformation over and over again. That's the recipe for, for conspiracy theories and, and cultish psychology. How do we uh, protect ourselves from thinking that everyone who doesn't think like us is a lib or on the other side, a MAGA? So there's only two kinds of Americans. There's libs and Americans. And if you're, if, if, if you're over here, you don't think you're a lib, but you hate MAGA. Uh, or on the other side, you don't think you're a MAGA, but you hate libs, right? Yeah. And, I mean, here's one thing that tends to blow people's mind is that I've, I've talked about how polarized we are, how it's driven by outgroup hate. 
here's something that's even surprising to people. It kind of contra- It sounds like it contradicts what I said, which is the other side actually hates you more than they did before, but they don't hate you as much as you think. And you stereotype them a lot more than you think. Ooh. And so, for example, if you ask Republicans what percentage of uh, Democrats are like LGBTQ, they'll say like 35%. Really, it's more like 5 to 6%. <laughs> if you ask Democrats how much, what percentage of Republicans make over $250,000 a year, they'll say, oh, you know, 30, 40% of them, but it's only like 1% or 2%. Most people don't fit those stereotypes that are getting repeated and spread, especially on social media, which is something I study and, and in the mainstream media. They're caricatures, they're cartoons. And so once you actually talk to a living, breathing human from a, from a different group, you often find that they're not the way that you've been told. And, and they don't act, they actually have more complex beliefs. They don't actually, they can't be fit into a box as easily. They're more open-minded and nuanced. Um, they might have some beliefs you don't agree with, but not on everything. And so often, once you get in to meet them in, in the flesh and blood and get talking and ask questions and l- actually listen, you'll find out that they're actually, you have more in common than you might think. And that gets us to chapter four. So <laughs> you write in chapter four, and this is fascinating, where this is where you examine the interplay between human psychology and the new technologies that we all fortunately and unfortunately have to live with, including social media, which you write has in many ways contributed to the rise in partisanship that uh, we have in this country. So um, take us through that. So let me just say the first thing. Four billion people are on social media around the world. Wow. The average social media media users online for three hours a day. And when they're scrolling on their, their phone, they flip down. My phone's about six inches tall. They scroll through about 300 feet of newsfeed a day. That's the height of the Statue of Liberty. God. That's what you're scrolling through. And so what pops out, what grabs your attention, right? You've heard of the tension economy. It's stuff that's extreme. And so mm. what we find that people grabs their attention is when people use moral emotions, and so they're used, it's kind of like shouting from a megaphone and, and, and saying that you, those people are disgusting. I hold them in such contempt. That's what breaks through when all these people are scrolling. It gets shared. Every time you use a moral emotional word, it gets shared about 15 to 20% more. If you put three or four or five or six of those in your headline or in your message, that's what starts to go viral. Now, that might be great for you. You get lots of clicks, likes, followers. But when we looked at it, what we found is when people talk like that about politics, it just creates two echo chambers. When you talk about the exact same issues and you don't use that language, people from the other side actually listen to you. They might engage with you. They might share it. Hmm. And so you're getting the feedback that you hit the jackpot when you use that language and it's going viral. But on the other hand, you're alienating a lot of people. You're no longer persuasive. And in studies we've run in my lab, people suddenly see you as closed-minded. They see you as a hyper-partisan. And so online, that the structures and the algorithms are designed to let extremism win. And they win the attention economy, but they're actually the, often the most divisive messages and alienating to people. And so in the meanwhile, you know, 80, 90 percent of, of people feel totally alienated from these conversations and just don't jump in because their messages don't get spread. People don't engage with them and they get shouted down or, or harassed. And so that's that's the dynamics of social media. And, and again, it's not just America. Four billion people are online and we're on it for hours a day. Yeah, that's fascinating because, it, boy, it makes us think, right, Scotty, of how in the past when you and I have done stuff and then we have to post it on social media, the the guilty is charged. I mean, you, you literally want to use words that make people uh, really uh, focus on an action 
And it has mm-hmm. to be a despicable action or a stupid action or a or a uh, wrong headed or you, you have to be able to assign a, a almost a moral conviction to it. And once you do that, you're going to get a lot of people who are going to watch it. You know, you will. And if you give it uh, a, a neutral description, Nobody. like the professor says, you, yeah. you'll probably get a better conversation, but not a, as big a hit. The clickbait factor goes away when you do that, when you're neutral, right? Yeah. You know, I remember learning in high school journalism about, you know, if it bleeds, it leads, you know, that whole lesson about, you know, the sensationalizing of things. So people will back then open up the newspaper or turn on your channel. Now it's, you know, clickbait that worked, I guess, for the mainstream medias of the time when it was, you know, a certain amount. But now that everybody has almost in their own sense, their own news organization with social media, you know, that bleed it leads that's being shared for a billion times. Yeah. It's not just, you know, the the 10 or 20, you know, uh, uh, outlets that you have around the country at one point. Yeah, but, but you know everybody. And and he's right by the way. When I see certain language that I deem trigger language, I've I've now automatically judged you. Now I may back it up because I'm a I find that I'm a pretty reasonable person sometimes, but when I hear you using certain buzzwords for certain topics that I know have been inserted into our language to get people, you know, pissed off, I now have a bias against you. You mean it's, you I, mean I you mean you, so you're like saying when, 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 <laughs> yeah when you know that somebody's trying to use like clickbait or trying to do something on purpose just to yes. collect or hits. even even talking to people and I hear them start using certain language if if I hear somebody say you know these damn illegal aliens ding yeah you know I, who I, yeah you know I've what now, channel they I've watch now, the, I've now I now have a perception of you without knowing everything about you, you now you, you may not hate. Uh, Hispanic people or Latinos. You may not think that all these people are bad people, but because this language, this verbiage has been inserted into in, into your vocabulary by other people, other sources, I now think that you're one of these people that hate everybody because you're calling them illegals. Yeah. You, instead and that, of undocumented. And that, or, well, you know, and it's funny because, boy, you just made a great point that I want to throw at the professor. Nowadays, we use that coded language, which mm-hmm. automatically, like Scotty said, he's absolutely right, defines when I hear someone say illegals, I know how they vote. I know what channel they watch. I know what conversations they have. I know what movies they like. I know who they hang around with. I know probably where they're from. It's like, boom, one word and I gotcha. And you could do that with people on the left or people yes. on the right. Uh, depending on the language they use as, as as well, whether they use, I don't know, cisgender, Latinx, or certain words that say, okay, he's an MSNBC viewer. Or, you know, illegals, okay, he's a Fox viewer. Wow, right? Have we ever been like that before? Yeah, I mean, so this is, again, we're really polarized, and especially around there's a small number of hyper-moral issues. And those become the same as, like like, wearing a jersey at a football game of your favorite team. You talk like that in your language, people can understand your identity. It's like if I go to Yankee Stadium and I see somebody with a Yankees cap or Red Sox cap, you know, I know, I know how that's going to go, right? I know who's, on, you know, who's going to cheer for one team. Careful, you're talking to a Yankees fan there. <laughs> no, he's I'm right. Blue, I'm a Blue Jays fan. I'm Canadian, so I'm just. <laughs> but that's the that's the rivalry, right? And so it's like you. This language serves the same function as wearing a cap of your sa- mm-hmm. favorite team. It's, I'm just going to jump in real quick, Rick. I am a New York Jets fan living in South Florida. I've lived in South Florida since I was 13 years old. And anytime I wear a New York Jets jersey, 
I've get I get a certain level of hostility towards me, and, and it's inter- and, and it's interesting that a couple years ago, when when this whole political thing started in our country, I started feeling like the Democrat Republicans started becoming like when I would go to the Jets Dolphin game. Hey, your team sucks. No, your team sucks. Your safety's garbage. Yeah, you know, and and we're not even always basing these things off of facts. My my record could be uh, one and eight, and I'm going to tell you your team sucks and our team's better, even though you guys are undefeated. It, so, it makes no sense, but we're now applying that stuff to politics. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it used to be something that lived in sports, <laughs> but it's out there. So here's well, the yeah. deal. So here's the deal, Professor. Here's, I think, where we try and need to try and move this conversation now that we've helped us, you, you've helped us understand where we are and how we got here. What can we do to uh, alter ourselves for the betterment of not only ourselves, but the group or groups that we live in? What, 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 can, what, what is your advice? Yeah, so my advice is to find common ground with people. And that can be, maybe you and I both can go to a Jets game together and enjoy it. Or it could be, you know, what the traditional way is, you know, you're both American. And so even though you disagree politically, you care about, say, democracy and the future of the country and the well-being of people and the things that make America great. And so, you know, a lot of people want to come from around the world to America for those things. And so that's something that that there is a common ground there that most people share, other than maybe people at the very extremes. And so I there's research. We said this massive study and they got 252 ideas from around the world of what you can do to help bridge this animosity in American politics. And we proposed something based on my book. And it turned out to be the third most effective thing. And it was basically reminding people that they share a common identity and they share these values. Once you do that, it actually decreases the temperature immediately. Um, the other thing you can do is um, communicate. These are the, I'll tell you the three best things. First one is from, from our book. The other two ones, one was they just showed people this great Heineken commercial of people from different political backgrounds building a bar together. And then it revealed to them that they actually have different beliefs. They asked them if they want to have a beer together. And, and people, well, yeah, I actually want to have this conversation with you now because we didn't lead with our politics. We did something in common. We had a common goal that that building huh. this thing together got to know each other as humans. And now we can layer on the politics and it can be with a rich kind of understanding of you as a human being. The third thing that worked, and, and this was, you already did this uh, at the, at, in the show, um, is you say, I actually really don't like how the media is portraying my group. And I understand the media is not portraying your group fairly as well. And that actually makes people like chill out a little bit because they know they've been misrepresented in the media and that mm. puts them on the defensive. And just the mm. acknowledgement that that's happening and another people recognize they're not like this person that you know shows up on, on, you know, talk, on, on the talk shows at 9 p.m. Um, and, and they understand that that person's a human, not a caricature. And they appreciate that. Yeah. And so those are the three things. Do those three things together at, at, over the holidays. And you'll probably get along better than just spewing moral emotions at one another. So if you have a uh, friend who maybe even voted for Trump or classifies himself as a conservative or as a Republican, you should call him after you've heard this podcast and say to him, listen, I just want you to know you are not a fascist. I don't think you're a fascist, regardless of what all my liberal friends say about you and everybody else like you who votes Republican. I mean, that would probably go a long way, right? <laughs> yeah, imagine someone coming to you and saying the opposite of the insult you expect. Yeah. Wow. That's Imagine that in any walk of life. Yeah. <laughs> I don't and care how old you are, what your politics are, what country you're from. Just imagine someone recognizing your humanity. 
recognizing your humanity and uh, finding a common place with you, right? Mm. Because that's the beauty of that. I also like your second example of people when are put in a situation, when they're put in a situation where they're project-oriented. In other words, you, Professor, me, and Scotty are going to build a pond in my backyard this weekend. And together, you know, we're going to go through a six-pack of beer, but we're going to build a pond. We're going to get the rocks, and we're going to build this thing. By the way, I just did that recently with my wife and my sons. It was one of the funnest projects we've ever done, and we were so into it that everything else didn't matter. We didn't sit around talking about anything other than which rock was going to go where. And that was very effective. So if, if we do more things like that in the old days, they said that about the military. When you join the Marines or where you join the Army, right, Scotty? You were in the military. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to be with a black dude from uh, oh, yeah. from the Bronx, and you're going to be with a white dude from Alabama, and you're going to be with a Latino guy from Texas. And after a while, you don't give a crap about anything other than oh, the yeah. fact that you're all working together to stay alive. You right? figure it out real quick, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and just think, again, we'll, I'll bring this all the way back to, to our evolutionary ancestors. That's what they were doing. They were sitting around mm. making fires, trying to get food, helping each other, sharing things, working together. Otherwise, they were going to die. And that's the foundation of a real relationship. And if somebody had introduced television back then or cable news, they probably would have been at each other's throats. It's a good thing we got to where we are today. There's social media. That was the other tribe across the river, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They use smoke signals. They use smoke signals. Yeah, those other guys, they're asses. Uh, They're a bunch of of socialists and communists, smoke signals sending up. (laughs) Yeah, socialists, fascists, socialists, fascists. That's who we are. It's a funny time to be an American, man. I tell you what. but we'll get through it. And you know what? Boy, what a, what a great conversation. Mm. Uh, Dr. J, you're fantastic. You really are. Um, I so, so enjoy it. By the way, your book, is, again, is called For Everyone. Go get it. Because this is really, I mean, this is timely shit. The Power of Us. The Power of Us. J. Van Bavel, like bagel. Uh by the way, the whole title is The Power of Us Harnessing Our Shared Identities to Improve Performance, Increase Cooperation, and Promote Social Harmony. I don't usually read the entire uh, title like that, but in this case, <laughs> God, it's so apropos. I mean, it's exactamente lo que estamos diciendo. So thanks again. Thanks, Scotty. Always good to be with you, Absolutely. bud. You too, Professor. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Hey, anything you want to pitch, by the way, Professor? No, I mean, I, I, well, I say one thing that we have a free newsletter called The Power of Us. If people want to just go through it and read some of those or follow it, we send every every week or two a new study, a new insight. So you can get the goal is to get people smarter about groups so we can harness it for good things rather than destructive things. How do I sign up? What do I do? Where do I go for uh, that? It's just go Power of Us newsletter, Jay Van Bavel. Put it in Google and you'll get there. Okay, good. So just go to the Google. Doing it right now. Go to the Googles. Go to the Googles. Run. Don't walk. That's great. That sounds so great. This is the Rick Sanchez podcast. It's a part of Agua Media. You can go to aguamedia.com and see some of the other podcasts that we have and the 10 or 20 or so that we've got upcoming this uh, coming year. We're very excited about it. Uh, the Rick Sanchez podcast is ubiquitous. So you can obviously find it on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get. Uh, your podcast. And we welcome you to go there and engage. Tell us if you think we're full of crap or if, you know, we helped you with something on this particular day. And if you see us on the old YouTube place, always be sure and subscribe, subscribe, as Jerry says in the background, go Jets, go Dolphins, go Cowboys. Go Cowboys. <laughs>
<laughs> and of course, there's always the Toronto Blue Jays, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I actually had a pretty good year again. last year. It's been about 25 years of misery, but we're, we're, we're back. <laughs> we all know a little bit about that. Thanks so much for being with us. Dale, andale, vamos con todo. Agua. 